0: The best historical evidence is that 312 people were killed for their beliefs in England and Wales between 1555 and 1558 during the reign of the Roman Catholic Queen we've got used to calling Bloody Mary. Most of them were burned at the stake.
1: But over the last 20 years or so, historians have completely rewritten this period. We now know that this terrible story has much less to do with the Queen, Mary Tudor, than we thought. England in this period was technically a joint monarchy, and in practice effectively being governed by Mary's Spanish husband, King Philip. And he worked closely with a small group of English councillors. Now, once you sit around a table with these councillors, you realise that they were no fools and no pushover. In fact, they were extremely able men, probably the most able council
0: in the whole of the Tudor period. And look again, there's something else. Most of them had for decades either been leading Protestants or at the very least had been loudly and actively sympathetic to Protestantism. And now here they were, apparently burning hundreds of Protestants at the stake.
1: Well, the words back and drawing board come to mind. Clear the table, lick your pencil, get out your magnifying glass. Time for some historical detective work.
0: Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow.
1: And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us.
0: So, get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. We've seen that England in the mid-1550s was being governed by King Philip of Spain, and a select council, a Spanish-style consejo cogido of extremely able English politicians. Almost all of them had experience in government stretching back through the violently Protestant regime of Edward VI and into the reign of Henry VIII. Several of them had been personally involved in Henry's original break with Rome. To all appearances, they had for years been living as active Protestants. And yet here they were in the reign of Philip and Mary, conducting a campaign against religious heresy that we've always understood to be a Catholic campaign to stamp out Protestantism. Well, it makes no sense at all. Perhaps that's because like traditional English historians,
1: we've only been thinking about what was going on in England. What happened during what we must get used to calling the reign of Philip and Mary, in fact, only begins to make sense when you know what had been happening in the rest of Europe. Actually, that's true about every part of British history. Look at our series on Henry VIII's break with Rome, all the ending of British enslavement, all the suffragettes. Well, you can check all those out for yourselves.
0: Yes, do. It helps here to sketch extremely briefly and broadly what had been going on in the early 16th century religious revolution that we've come to call the Reformation. Now, specialist religious historians should just go up and get another coffee for a moment because we're going to have to simplify this rather horribly. But for this story, we only need to know some very basic outlines. So simplifying
1: a very great deal and rather painfully, there were two broad and themselves divided Protestant strands to the Reformation, which split the church in the course of the 1520s and 1530s. What we call Protestants were divided between Martin Luther in Germany and John Calvin, among others, in Switzerland. Luther, simplifying, stressed reading the Bible in your own language and, for example, that salvation, which basically meant going to heaven, was by faith in God rather than anything you achieved yourself. But in most other ways, Lutherans remained very close to traditional Roman Catholicism.
0: The Swiss reformers were more opposed to Catholic Rome. They believed the state should run the church. It should also do away with all the images and symbols that Catholics find helpful. Keep religion simple. In fact, keep it mostly in the mind.
1: Historian Dermot McCulloch has shown that the English church under Henry navigated a kind of middle course between the German Lutherans and the Swiss Calvinists. In fact, it was also a middle course between Protestants and Catholics. Well, there are endless complicated theological debates, which we don't need to worry about. But for example, in England, the state now ran the church, which is what the Swiss Protestants wanted it to do.
0: However, until Henry's death, its priests went on saying mass in Latin in gorgeously decorated and colourful churches like the Catholics.
1: But for a while, they'd also experimented with using Bibles, not in Latin, but in
0: English. Like the German Protestants, who, of course, read it in German. So until the 1540s, England was no longer Roman Catholic, but nor was it particularly Protestant either.
1: Now, what English historians don't tell you is that this kind of muddling through wasn't unique to England at all. In the course of the 1530s, in fact, there had been a series of international conferences in Germany known as colloquies they were organised in the hope of finding agreement between Catholicism and the various strands of Protestantism. By 1540, in fact, real progress seemed to have been made. The most famous of these colloquies was the last held at Regensburg in Bavaria in April and May 1541. Six theologians, three Catholic and three from the various strands of Protestantism, met with various other contributors from both sides. A lot of talking went on behind the scenes, uh, not least because the two sides were furiously arguing as much among themselves as with the other side. But by now they were building on a decade of previous meetings and, surprisingly, a great deal was agreed between them.
0: Then they got to the absolutely central question of whether... Simplifying a complex issue horribly, you were saved without help from anyone else, simply because you believed, which was Luther's position, or whether you also needed to live a good life, which is what the Catholics said. There was, as you may imagine, a lot of furrowed brows and days of difficult negotiation. But much to everyone's amazement and delight, on the 2nd of May, 1541, the six theologians, three Protestant, three Catholics, finally hammered out an agreement. Which was, well, basically...
1: Actually, let's not worry about it. We're we're not theologians. It really doesn't matter to the stories. It's much too complicated.
0: (laughs) Well, what matters to us is that Catholics and Protestants of various different kinds had at last come together and agreed on the most central truth of Christianity. For a moment, at the beginning of May 1541, it really looked as though the greatest religious split in modern times was on the point of being healed.
1: So the Reformation was very nearly over before it started. But that day, the 2nd of May, 1541, turned out to be the high point. After that, the conference in Regensburg fell apart. Nothing else was agreed. The theologians eventually managed to cobble together a sort of joint statement and presented it to Philip of Spain's father, Charles V, who'd set the conference up but their document was well, full of theological holes and both sides subsequently sent in pages and pages of reservations.
0: Look imagine it.
1: Both Martin Luther and the Catholic Vatican in Rome eventually even rejected Regensburg's hard-won compromise on how you were saved.
0: Read most English histories of the Tudors and you won't find any mention of what happened at Regensburg. But the failure to establish any religious agreement at the Regensburg Colloquy changed the rules for everyone including people in England. For decades, there'd been a middle ground for compromise between Protestant and Catholic, but that now began to vanish. Increasingly, across Europe and in England and Wales, you either had to be a Protestant or a Roman Catholic. There was nowhere in between. There'd be no more colloquies in Germany where political and religious divisions were particularly badly tangled together, religious disagreement turned into political violence and finally, in 1547-8, into war. Now that was what everyone was scared of.
1: A German peace treaty was finally agreed at Augsburg between February and September 1555. It's worth looking at this because its terms are very significant for us. The terms of Augsburg were an admission of failure to find any religious compromise between Protestants and Catholics. They are nowadays always summed up by a much later but extremely useful Latin phrase, cuius regio, eius religio. Whoever the ruler is, they're the ones who choose the religion, meaning religion of their country or their state or even their individual city. It's not a statement of theology, it's a statement of dirty political reality. You had to be either Catholic or Protestant, either Lutheran or Calvinist, not according to what you believed, but according to where you lived and what your local ruler happened to decide.
0: The Peace of Augsburg of 1555 only applied to what is now Germany, but its terms reflected dark lines of religious division that had spread across Europe. Ambiguity and compromise were disappearing everywhere, The kind of half-Protestant, half-Catholic regime that Henry VIII had maintained in England and Wales until 1547 would have been much more difficult ten years later. In fact, it was already looking out of date by the time Henry died.
1: And as if that doesn't already completely change how we understand what then happened in the reign of Philip and Mary, you also have to consider what had been going on within the Catholic Church.
0: After the failure of the conference or colloquy at Regensburg in 1541, the middle ground between Protestant and Catholic began to disappear across Europe. It became increasingly necessary to choose one side or the other depending on where you lived. What makes it worse is what had been going on within the Catholic Church.
1: The Reformation had not begun as we always used to be told because the Catholic Church was corrupt and collapsing. It had begun largely because the Catholic Hierarchy was corrupt and collapsing. There was a continuous and scandalous succession of popes and cardinals from Italy's wealthy banking and merchant families who exploited the church for their own ends. Rome was, by the 16th century, in the Catholic historian Eamon Duffy's words, quotes, "...a city of expense account whores and political graft where everything and everyone had a price." Popes openly fathered children and cardinals were convicted of rape. In the early 16th century, the Vatican was split by rival factions sponsored by the French and the enormous Habsburg Empire. Papal policy, as we see in our series on Henry VIII, had much more to do with political power than with the Kingdom of God.
0: But while Catholic bishops and cardinals were dancing along with this shocking carnival, as some still do, the Catholic laity, the people who weren't priests or nuns or religious, were experiencing a remarkable flowering of faith. Lay associations met for prayer and charity. They raised money to pay for their own priests and built chapels for them to say mass in. There was a boom in religious literature, in the saying of private prayer and in ordinations. Writing about the church in the 15th century, just before the Reformation, historian Brad Gregory concludes that, quote, Much recent research suggests that it was arguably more devout than any preceding century in the history of Western Christianity. At no time before had so many of the laity participated so enthusiastically in their religious lives. Gregory
1: points out that this lay Catholic church welcomed a very wide range of religious beliefs, including many ideas influenced by the new Renaissance learning known as humanism many of the lay people called loudly for reforms in the church. We can now see in particular that Mary Tudor was, far from the narrow and over bigot we've always been told she was, in fact a modern, humanist, reforming Catholic, like her mother, in fact, Catherine of Aragon. Mary, for example, found plenty of common cause with Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's sixth and last wife, who married him in 1543. Now, Catherine Parr is often imagined as an out-and-out Protestant, But in fact, she got on very well with Mary. They warmly respected each other. Mary was then in her 20s. They shared reading together. Catherine Parr left Mary all her books. And of course, while there was room for religious tolerance and ambiguity in Europe, there was nothing particularly unusual about all this. Plenty of Catholics were interested in Protestant ideas, and plenty of Protestants were interested in Catholic ideas.
0: If you went, for example, to the city of Viterbo in northern Italy in the 1540s, you'd have found a high-powered circle of Catholic bishops and theologians who were committed to reform, to humanism, and to sharing ideas with the Protestants. At the centre of this circle was Mary's own cousin, Reginald Poole, who was then a cardinal and who would later be Philip and Mary's Archbishop of Canterbury. The reforming Catholics around Poole came to be known as the Spirituali, the spiritual ones. They included several distinguished Catholic bishops from Italy and Spain. At key moments at the Regensburg Conference, for example, these spirituali had sided not with the Catholic Church, but with the Lutherans.
1: There were Other Catholics, however, who were just as appalled at the abuses of their Catholic hierarchy but who didn't want to tangle with all that humanist thinking or or with any Protestant ideas or perhaps any ideas at all, these so-called intransigenti, the inflexible ones, believed the solution to the corruption was not to dabble in what newfangled theology. What you needed to do was to double down on medieval tradition and after the failure at Regensburg, the intransigenti began to grow stronger and
0: stronger. In 1542, one of them, Gian Pietro Carafa, Archbishop of Naples, persuaded the Pope to re-establish the Roman Inquisition, the legal structures for detecting and stamping out heresy that had originally been invented in the late 12th century. The Inquisition would later acquire a shocking reputation, but right from the start, it was run by the hardliner Carafa, and he was known to mutter that he would burn his own mother if he discovered she was out of line.
1: Well, in the course of the 1540s the intransigenti gained ground and the reforming spirituali began to break up. For a while the mafiosi, uh, the intransigenti, carafa <laughs> and the spirituali pool worked together to prepare for a church council, a large, formal and very powerful Europe-wide conference to plan for reform. The council finally opened in December 1545 at the northern Italian city of Trent.
0: Now, many Catholics will have heard of the Council of Trent, which met three times over the next 18 years. Well, Trent
1: was meant to try and find compromises and reforms to heal the divisions within the Catholic Church and perhaps also to build bridges with the Protestants.
0: And it all began, hopefully, enough. The opening sermon was written by the Spirituale Pool. In June 1546, he even delivered a speech defending the central Lutheran belief of salvation by faith alone. But soon afterwards, Poole walked away claiming ill health. And now, the transidenti began to win battle after battle.
1: We'll look ahead a bit, and by the time the council had finished its third and final session, it had outlawed anything that Luther had ever said or done, and set out in much more rigid terms than ever before what Catholics could, and more particularly, could not believe and do. After the failure at Regensburg, and the peace negotiated at Augsburg, the decrees of the Council of Trent eventually made it a nailed-on certainty that any hope of religious compromise was dead.
0: Back in Philip and Mary's time, in May 1555, while the Augsburg Peace Conference was still meeting, Gian Pietro Carafa, the Intransigenti Archbishop of Naples, the one who would burn his mother, was elected Pope, taking the name Paul IV. In his first formal meeting with the cardinals, the new pope set out his priority, which was. Oh, surprise, surprise. To suppress heresy and batter down false doctrine. He then launched a serious escalation of religious conflict and persecution across Europe. Well, he helped turn the breach in Christendom into an abyss, which has never since been bridged.
1: Now, of course, all this matters to us in this story because it changes the way we think about heresy in England or anyone else. After all, who exactly was and was not a heretic? We've been trying to understand how it was that over 300 people could be put to death For their religious beliefs between 1555 and 1558 in England and Wales during the reign of Philip and Mary. Look, it bears saying as clearly as possible that nobody under any circumstances should ever try to excuse burning people or killing them in any other way for their faith. But this isn't what this is about. This is about trying to understand how such a shocking episode can have come about. Above all, as we shall see, we owe it to the victims to get the story right.
0: We do. We owe it to the victims. We've also seen that this English persecution was just one part of a Europe-wide collapse of religious toleration from the late 1540s. One result was the growing conviction that a nation's religion would be decided by its ruler.
1: Another was to change the rules about who was and who wasn't a heretic. While during the 1520s and the 1530s and into the early 1540s, Protestants and Catholics have still been throwing ideas around and talking to each other, individuals have been able to find their own place on one side or the other or somewhere in between. It was quite difficult to define who was and who was not a heretic.
0: By 1555, however, all that was finished. With the failure of the Regensburg Compromise between Catholic and Protestant and the election of hardline Pope Paul IV... An acceptance at Augsburg in 1555 that rulers would have to choose their people's religion
1: and the decrees that kept piling up at the Council of Trent
0: anathema this, anathema that almost all the room for discussion had disappeared. Now far more people than ever before were in danger of being accused of heresy whether for dabbling in new thinking or just for belonging to the wrong church in the wrong place.
1: And of course, the implications of all this are obvious for the new religious persecution that occurred in England between 1555 and 1558. The burning of heretics at that time in England was not the invention of bloody Queen Mary. It was just one part of a much broader, in fact, a terrifying escalation of religious intolerance that was occurring across the whole of Europe. King Philip's councillors were only doing what everyone else was doing.
0: In the 1990s, the historian William Monter undertook... The first examination of Catholic inquisitions across Europe in this period. Of
1: course, it was only then possible because the records of the Inquisition uh, in the 1960s renamed the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faithful had just been made public. For the very first time. Rather like the Soviet Union.
0: Held on to them for so long. Monta finds that the number of executions rose from about 1520 and reached a peak during the papacy of, guess what, the intransigenti Paul IV, that's 1555 to 1559, and in the few years immediately afterwards. Now, Paul IV was, as you remember, the former head of the Inquisition, the one who would burn his mum. The burnings under Philip and Mary occurred between 1555 and 1558. Hmm. This really seems conclusively to show that the burnings in England were only one part of a much larger pattern. Now, as John says, that's not any kind of excuse, but it is part of an explanation.
1: Now, Monta also noticed something else. Attacks on so-called heretics began to escalate, for example, in France in the 1530s when the law was changed. It passed responsibility for enforcing religious uniformity from the church to the secular state authorities. In France, it was the regional parlement that took the initiative. Here, Burnings peaked in 1559. The same was true in the Netherlands, where the peak was 1555-1556. The peak was also in the late 1550s in Spain. Now, here the Inquisition was a rather special case. It had been established back in the 15th century and had always been under the control of the crown. But in every other case, sometime in the mid-16th century, heretics began to be arrested by the secular state authorities. They then handed them to the church to try them and if they were found guilty they took them back and then executed them. The noticeable thing is that the number of executions always increased when the secular state authorities began to take the lead.
0: Of course, we should all nowadays object that it's none of the state's business what private citizens believe, but such an argument would have sounded completely outlandish to 16th century Europeans. Everyone assumed that state and church ran a society together, and that dissent from either one of them would break a parish or a city or a nation apart. Heresy was like a kind of treason. Where church and
1: state began saying different things, as happened in parts of Germany, for example, between the 1520s and the 1550s, or in both France and the Netherlands in the 1560s, and would indeed happen in England after 1640, the result, in every case, was civil war. The notion that one community could possibly contain more than one faith or even more than one version of the same faith, wouldn't be completely accepted in Britain, for example, until the 19th century, Emancipation of Catholics 1829. So the concept of curius Regio Eos Religio, the government chose the religion, was simply a practical solution to a well-recognised problem. Religious unity was in practice defined and enforced everywhere, not by the church, but by the secular state government.
0: Now, perhaps all of this might begin to explain why King Philip's select councillors, who were effectively governing England and apparently running the campaign against heretics, seemingly against Protestant heretics, had themselves in the past almost all been living and working as Protestants. Perhaps they had in reality been somewhere in this ambiguous middle ground between Protestantism and Catholicism. So it wouldn't have been very difficult for them to jump either way, according to who the reigning monarch was.
1: Well, this might certainly help us understand the position of Stephen Gardner, who was a leading member of King Philip's Select Council, and who'd always inclined towards the conservative, rather Catholic-leaning side of Henry VIII's regime. Gardner had in fact spent most of Edward's reign in jail. Given the widespread collapse of the religious middle ground, Gardiner could in 1555, without too much discomfort, swing behind Philip and Mary and a Catholic campaign against heresy. You might say the same, perhaps
0: just, about the Earl of Arundel. But this European context doesn't get us very far in understanding why the others in King Philip's select council might have switched sides. In fact, it makes the whole riddle even more difficult to solve. And the reason is that in England and Wales, religious ambiguity and toleration had not continued until 1553 and then disappeared when Mary came to the throne. It had already ended suddenly and dramatically in 1547 when Henry VIII died and Edward VI had come to the throne. The men who joined King Philip's select council had had to choose what side they were on then, many years before. And they had chosen to back out and out Protestantism. OK,
1: let's just look at what happened back in 1547. We can now see, in contrast to what most non-historians still believe, that Henry VIII had not really established a Protestant church in England at all. For political reasons, Henry had split with Rome, but his English church sat in a kind of no-man's land between Catholicism and Protestantism. In fact, it was much closer to Catholicism than to Protestantism. Most of what went on in the parishes was no different from the time before Henry had been born. By the time Henry died, however, in January 1547, this no-man's land was being intensely shelved from both sides and was becoming more and more difficult to occupy.
0: What exactly happened when Henry VIII died is nowadays rather controversial. Henry's heir was Edward, his son with Jane Seymour. In January 1547, Edward was, despite the old tradition you'll still often hear, a perfectly healthy boy. But he was only nine years old. He couldn't rule in his own right until he was 18. Henry's will had apparently put in place a council to rule England until then, balancing the various religious and political factions at court. But having a child king had always led to problems in the past. And the council that Henry drew up in his will would have been too big and too divided to have ruled effectively.
1: Now, it used to be said that Henry's secretary, William Paget, who would later be perhaps the leading figure in King Philip's select council, now conspired with one of Henry's councillors, the Earl of Harford, to alter the king's will. In fact, it's said that they altered it after the king was dead and faked his signature themselves. Now, some historians nowadays contest there was ever such a plot. They say that the other councillors, including, for example, William Paulet, later to be another among Philip's select council, simply well just agreed to ignore some of what Henry had written. Well, it doesn't really matter for us as a good story, but the upshot of whatever happened among the councillors as soon as Henry was dead was that Harford emerged among them as Lord Protector of England. It meant that he, Harford, could
0: virtually rule the kingdom alone. And Harford had always been among the more Protestant of Henry's councillors. But nobody probably expected what came next. In the 1540s, the religious climate cooled dramatically across Europe debate between Protestant and Catholic, between Catholic and Catholic, Protestant and Protestant was progressively replaced by intolerance and persecution. In England, the darkness was held back for a while by the religious indifference of Henry VIII. But when Henry died and his young sons succeeded him, somehow the councillors that Henry left in charge handed power to the Earl of Harford, And then the reign of religious intolerance in England began. Back in
1: 1987,
0: the historian Ronald Hutton published research
1: that changed everything we knew about the Reformation in England. Hutton showed that between 1547 and 1549, Harford, or the Duke of Somerset as he rapidly made himself, railroaded through a sudden, brutal transformation of English parishes. He enforced more Protestant change on the English and Welsh in two years than Henry had in two decades. Altars were destroyed. Colourful wall paintings, the likes of which most of us have never seen, were whitewashed over. Stained glass was smashed, the old Latin words of the Mass replaced by a new English service. Well, in cultural terms, Somerset was a vandal who destroyed most of England's medieval art
0: at a stroke. There's a fantastic example of a pre-Somerset English church interior, which has been recreated at St Fagan's National Museum of Wales, near Cardiff.
1: Yeah, It's fantastic. It's a riot of colour. Go and see it. Now, in religious terms, Somerset was, of course, only doing what, for example, the more extreme Swiss reformers had always wanted. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, was happy enough to go along with Somerset's sudden and extreme Protestant Reformation. So apparently, for many months, were others in the government. The very men who were later to be Philip's select councillors. Men like Paget and Peter and Paulet and
0: Pembroke. Traditional English historians, of course, always assumed that the English population widely welcomed Somerset's sudden new Protestantism with joy and relief, as if England had always really been Protestant and was just waiting to get back to it. The reality as historians since the 1980s have repeatedly shown, could not have been more different. In 1549, there were rebellions in virtually every county in the land. The worst outbreak of near-revolution in the entire Tudor period.
1: Now, not all the rebels were demanding the same thing. Most of them were demanding economic changes. In East Anglia, some of the rebels were apparently content with Somerset's religious changes. But in other places, and especially in the West Country, they loudly demanded a return to the old, almost Catholic ways of Henry's time. The Cornish loudly complained that they used to understand the Latin. They spoke Cornish, but at least they understood the Latin. Archbishop Cranmer's new English services were in a foreign language they didn't know. It was all they said like a lot of Christmas games.
0: The Duke of Somerset negotiated with the East Anglian rebels, but he dispatched a large army to wipe out, literally, the Western ones. They met at Sampford Courtney in Devon, and Somerset's forces slaughtered something like 4,000 of the rebels in a single day. That was more than 10 times as many killed for their beliefs in the whole of Philip and Mary's reign. And it was followed by a campaign of nobody knows how many summary executions without trial.
1: What it shows conclusively is that religious intolerance in England and Wales had very clearly begun, not under Mary, but already, years before, under Edward.
0: In the new king, Edward VI, was a boy of nine. The councilors Henry had left in charge somehow handed power to Edward's uncle, who made himself the Duke of Somerset and used his position to ram through the brutal Protestant Reformation of England and Wales. In 1549, partly as a result, there were rebellions across the entire country. And then Somerset was removed from power. But under his replacement, the Duke of Northumberland, the pace of religious change showed little sign of slowing down.
1: In a show of supposed broad-mindedness, the Duke of Somerset had repealed all of England's medieval heresy laws. But, and this is very important, heretics went on being burned. In fact, after 1549, the governments under Edward VI began winding up for a full frontal attack on heresy. From January 1551, the Duke of Northumberland established a series of royal commissions to seek out and prosecute heretics. By 1553, an unknown number had been tried and
0: two had already been burned. A mercifully small beginning, but by then, Archbishop Thomas Cramer was also trying to get Parliament to pass what he called his Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum. It was a new code of church law for the English and Welsh Church, In it, Cranmer set out, without any ambiguity at all, what was expected from his parishioners. He made it perfectly clear that you would be burned at the stake if you didn't conform. Cranmer had in fact been burning people he regarded as heretics since the very beginning of his time as archbishop in 1533. And now he was intending to clamp down much more systematically on anyone who stepped out of line.
1: Well, in the event Cranmer's new code of church law got bogged down in political infighting in parliament and hadn't yet been passed by the time Mary came to the throne. But by then, Northumberland was himself on the point of establishing a full-scale English inquisition to investigate and burn heretics. Historian John Edwards reckons that Northumberland's inquisition would even have burnt moderate Lutherans, let alone Catholics, and would have done it on less evidence than the Roman inquisition itself.
0: What the traditional Protestant account of this period never told you is that religious intolerance didn't begin in England and Wales when Mary came to the throne or when she married Philip of Spain. Religious intolerance and persecution began in England and Wales under Edward VI. Well, the result is that it makes it even more difficult to understand why the men in King Philip's Select Council should ever have been associated with the campaign to burn Protestants from 1547 until 1553, most of this coterie of English and Welsh courtiers had shown a very considerable measure of Protestant religious commitment. They had, with just a couple of exceptions, been personally complicit in a whole series of tough and enforced Protestant changes. So the difficult question with which we began has become more difficult than ever. How could this select council possibly have consented to a campaign from 1555 to 1558, which we're always told was intended to stamp out Protestantism? It may have been part of a Europe-wide pattern, but within England itself it seems to make no sense. Well, we're
1: left hunting around for other explanations. The Elizabethan Protestant writer John Fox always maintained, and traditionally English Protestant historians always accepted, that the campaign against heresy between 1555 and 1558 in England was actually not being run by the normal state authorities, as it was everywhere else in Europe. Fox claimed that it was actually being run behind the scenes by Queen Mary herself, together with a hard core of Catholic fanatics.
0: Now, we've already seen why, for reasons to do with what was going on in the 1560s when he was writing, Fox might have invented the entire story, that it was Mary herself who organised the persecution and burning of Protestants. It's always seemed to us a very unlikely explanation for what happened. But perhaps now we should give it another go.
1: And it has to be said there are still some historians who continue to say that when it came to this policy of persecuting heretics, the Queen Mary somehow managed to sidestep her husband and his select council of the country's most able and experienced courtiers and run it herself. The secret, they suggest, is that Mary collaborated with her cousin, soon to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Spirituale Cardinal Reginald Poole
0: which means we'll have to investigate that possibility next time at the History Café.
1: There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Café and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafé.org, and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter.
0: We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Café Podcasts with John and Penelope. And
1: beware of imitations.
0: Follow our regular blog at History Café Pod and spread the word.